Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I first met Chuck Todd many years ago when he was an up-and-coming young reporter for The Hotline, the forerunner of all these Washington tip sheets to follow. Then, as now, he was incredibly passionate about politics and into all the arcania of campaigns, which is to say a, a kindred spirit. He would become a protege of one of my favorites, the late, great, Tim Russert at NBC, and later the White House correspondent for NBC during the first couple of years of the Obama administration. Today he sits in Russert's exalted chair as NBC's political director and host of Meet the Press. I sat down earlier this week with Chuck in Greensboro, North Carolina, to talk about life and sports and, of course, politics. Chuck Todd, we're here in North Carolina together uh, for an event, and uh, instead of at Wrigley Field, where the playoffs, <laughs> where the one-game playoff with Milwaukee is going on as we tape, tape this, but you... Count me distracted a, right now. I'm basically not looking at you. I'm looking yes. right now. Uh, Wilson That's Contreras right. is up here. In the, where are we? In the bottom of the six with the man you on. You are... Uh, Strangely, you are a kid from Miami yeah. who is a Dodgers fan and a Green Bay Packers fan. And I, I think we should start by explaining that. Okay. All right. I know. I get this all the time with the head scratches and all this stuff. Well, people seem to forget Miami is a four-sport four, four sport town now. Yes. Okay. It's one of the, what are we, about <clears throat> a, 16 of them, I think, approximately, that are four-sport. When I was growing up, we were a one-pro-sports town. We just had the Dolphins. There was no basketball. There was no hockey and no baseball. In fact, the, the, the assumption was in baseball, well, you have spring training. Why do you, need a, why do you need a franchise? So Florida got overlooked for a long time. So as any kid, as any son who looks up to his father, he just adopts his father's teams. My father was a, got moved to Miami when he was a kid. When he was a from? T- teenager from Waterloo, Iowa. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, for those that don't know, Waterloo is sort of, I always say, described as small city, big town. But you said it properly, Waterloo. <laughs> I always I had this argument with Barack Obama. I said, yeah. remember, it's Waterloo, not Waterloo. He said, I don't know what the difference is. It's not. One is ABBA. Waterloo. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. If you're saying it one way, you're singing ABBA. And you know what? <laughs> if you're singing ABBA, you ain't winning a vote in Iowa. <laughs> Try to explain that. I wish you were with me. So... Um, uh, so, he's a, so, he, so he was a Packers he's fan. He's a Packers fan. Look, Waterloo, Iowa, Green Bay, Wisconsin, same town. Yeah. You know, in some ways. And as he said growing up, Chicago was the big city. So and he was raised the, the way there was a chip for, for a lot of Midwesterners in smaller towns. There's a chip on the shoulder about Chicago. So who was the Bears' big rival? Well, the working men of Green Bay, Wisconsin. So there was that. And then let me give you my Dodger story. So he became a Dodger fan. His dad was a Yankees fan. Look, this is the 50s. 
let's be realistic. You're a Dodgers fan or a Yankees fan in America. Right. Right. Unless you grew up near St. Louis <clears throat> or you grew up, you know, right. or you grew up near Chicago, but you know, other than that. And my dad met Roy Campanella as a six year old. No kidding. In a, in a hotel. In, I, I want to say it's the Drake hotel in Chicago, but it was in Chicago. And my grandfather encourages, he loves telling this story too. He encourages my dad go up, you know, like every grown man does with their kid. They'd really like to go meet said superstar. Yes. Just send the kid. And then they just stand by oh. and let the kid do all the I hard remember work. The, I got to call Yastrzemski's autograph that way. <laughs> I didn't know who Yaz was at the time. My dad was into Yaz, you know, you name it. I just, Mike, Yaz's kid played uh, Florida State baseball against University of Miami. So um, Yaz used to hang out at University of Miami baseball games. Anyway, so he met Roy Campanella. And Campy had just won the MVP, so he was the, I guess he was the face of Wheaties. That was, you were on the Wheaties box. Yeah. And he wasn't eating. Kind of historic. Yeah. It, at the time, that's right. Yeah, you know, yeah. people forget Roy Campanella, African-American catcher. He's MVP of the National League. So my dad, my grandfather tells him, ask him why he's not eating his Wheaties. So he didn't eat his. He said, well, you know, I can't eat Wheaties every morning. <laughs> the Dodgers lose that day. He goes up to him the next day. I, this is one of those, like, too good to check. You know, but the family lore is that my dad went back up to him. You didn't eat your should Wheaties. Should have those Wheaties. And it can't play, like Campy says, I should have eaten my Wheaties. <laughs> so Dodger fan for life. By the way, a reminder to all, all celebrities of whatever it is. Roy Campanella did that for my six-year-old father. Was a Dodger fan till his death. We watched the 1988 World Series together on his deathbed with the Dodgers. That's how much this stuff means. Max Scherzer did this for my kid about three years ago at Dodger Stadium. My son's obsessed with Max Scherzer to the point of like, if Max said jump, he would say, "How high, sir?" Uh, I'm you know, obsessed. I mean, I'm obsessed matters. with him too. Every but time he that, pitches against us, but people. this matters. Little no, it does. Listen, like that. and this and that is true, and uh, so is it true that uh, you inherit the sports habits of your dad you know my dad hated the yankees uh he he liked the giants but when they moved mm. he couldn't root for the giants and then we became mets fans in new york took me years to lose a lot of ex-dodger fans are mets fans right? <laughs> yes yes exactly exactly you know when i had bernie sanders on my very first podcast we talked about the dodgers and he said uh he said there were when i was growing up in brooklyn there were three people that we despised hitler Stalin and Walter O'Malley, and it wasn't even in that order. I'm not telling you what the order was. And yet, the real blame should be Robert Moses. But anyway, we can. Hey, that's that later. another story. <laughs> um, but tell me about your dad. You mentioned that he was on his deathbed. You were pretty young when that happened. Sixteen. Um, but as I always say, I don't know any different, so I don't know. And I say this because I say this to anybody who experiences this sort of trauma at a certain age. People tell you, "Oh my God," but you don't have another script to follow. So it's just that's just the way life worked for you he had struggles along the he way he did look he was um i, I could go down uh, uh large rabbit holes but i don't want my mom to accidentally listen to this podcast <laughs> and, and and look he he um he was a good dad he struggled uh with alcoholism took me a long time to acknowledge that he was a pretty he was pretty high functioning alcoholic mm -hmm. and so that's why it took me a long <clears> time to fully embrace that and, and fully appreciate that he ended up having a liver disease it's now called hepatitis c they didn't know what to call it then they had no cure for it then now of course it infects every now you see advertisement for it and the hardest thing for me right now is to know that a goddamn pill and he'd be fine yeah back then he was on the liver transplant list but too unstable to it, it, this is 1988 and it and i'm thinking 1988 it's the modern era i'm thinking this is modern medicine and yet 
here we are 30 years later and a pill would have cured him. They yeah. literally wouldn't have. He's sitting in ICU for 52 days. They couldn't figure it out. Beef broth soup would poison his body. And yet it's so I'll admit that it is one of these reminders. It's like the advancements mankind makes on, on, on medicine is, is, is unbelievable um, uh, on that front. You know, uh, people who listen to this podcast know that my dad committed suicide when I was 19. And I didn't talk about that for, for you know, 30 years because I thought somehow it besmirched his memory. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you felt the same way. But Because I didn't want it to be an excuse for what, what was wrong with my father. Because I thought, no, he's pretty... I was always impressed with him. Yeah. So well, you can be many. That, you I, can I, be many things. You can be, you can be struggling with depression or alcoholism mm-hmm. and still be a good dad. You know, he was an incredible reader. He was obsessed with politics. He made me. He gave me the love for it. I tweeted the other day that one of the. I'm sure you do this. I'm sure you have conversations with your father. Yes, I have convers- I have conversations that I sort of. I've piled up. Oh, man, I wish I had this conversation. I wish I had this conversation. Well, the other day, as I'm watching Bill Cosby get um, handcuffed sentenced, away, yeah. you know, sentenced, I was thinking, man, I would love to have a conversation with my father and just ask him this question. He says, Dad, you know, in 30 years of these two men, one's going to be president, one's <laughs> going to be in prison, Bill Cosby and Donald Trump, which is which? And because my father, obsessed over Cosby's parenthood, books thought that fatherhood books thought they were the funniest things and yeah would use those lessons really thought highly of bill cosby as one of these as did that, as did all of america yeah and it's so just he was one of you know he was one of the many yeah um and it's just it's just amazing but, but those two gentlemen in the 80s and where they are today i read somewhere that uh you had to do a book report, and he handed you Profiles in Courage, and that was sort of a gateway experience uh, for you. So, you know, all my memory of just our every bookcase that we had was we didn't have nonfiction. It was all nonfiction. It was all history books and all the books. To this day, I, th- I assume it's normal to organize all books by presidential term, uh-huh. and that's how I organize my bookshelf, my nonfiction bookcases. Uh, is by presidential term. So I always... You better was clean always, out another shelf here. Uh, yeah, and then some. It's going to be a whole warehouse of pump books, <laughs> right? Um, and when I was trying to figure out in eighth grade, and I had a teacher that, that you know, he, he knew I was struggling to sort of... And he said, all right, you'll... And he, and he, he says, read this book. And I did. I fell in love with Profiles and Courage. And all the individual... The story that I take away the most is the story in Andrew Johnson. And... and, 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 and uh, Edmund G. Ross, yes. senator from Kansas, Republican, who, who basically sacrificed his career by becoming the deciding vote to save Johnson, who was hated by the Republicans. Right. And would have, let's be realistic, it's possible that if you set, if, if, if he's impeached and he's thrown out of office, you set off a chain of events as polarizing as things were, it sort of cooled things down just enough to thought, okay, we're not going to use this process to relitigate post-Reconstruction. We're not going to re- we're not going to relitigate the Civil War this way. Um, and so, 
it's you think of that enamored. by the way when you were watching this this was near not even close to the magnitude no. of that but when flake cast his vote the other day or or at, used his leverage right uh, to force a probe, we don't know how serious a, mm-hmm. a probe it actually will end up being. Um, did you have any flashbacks? I did. Actually, the person I was flashing back most to was Wayne Morse. Mm-hmm. It was with because that I know a little bit more about that era going back to the late. 50s. I always love Wayne Morse because Flake reminds me of him more than any of the other folks. Because he was a guy who I think um, was a U.S. senator as a Democrat, as a Republican, and, and as an, an independent. independent. Yeah, um, and usually switching basically over big issues in order to in order to deal with a moment in time so uh, but i that's what i've always that's what sort of got me into this like this that and i'll admit it's taken me it took me a long time to not lionize senators took me probably a good 10 years of covering politics from the my era before i realized these guys shouldn't be lionized anymore and i'm sorry that. You also uh, wonder, I think the answer is yes, but you know, I always joke that, but it's not really a joke that there's a reason Profiles and Courage was such a slim volume. I mean, people <laughs> got in that book because it was the unusual thing mm-hmm. to risk your careers for matters of principle. But uh, it does feel, even in the course of my lifetime, and I don't know whether it's the media scrutiny, but I don't think it is, that we don't have these giant figures. Why did we mourn John McCain uh, the way we did as a country? We don't have these large figures, and and, uh, we we tend to shrink our, uh, and they shrink themselves in part because uh, the polarization is such that it's very, very hard to dissent. Well, then also we've combined our, you know, what we do to, we love to tear celebrities down. As a culture, yeah, and then we love the comeback, Tiger Woods. Right? Is there, is there anything as dramatic of a change from from the beatdown that Tiger Woods took in our American, in America's culture from oh seven, oh eight, oh nine, and ten, all you know, to then oh my God, it's a comeback, and we love the comeback. Um, and so in politics, we never we doing the same. We love to tear them down, but we don't love the comebacks. We don't, we don't, there's no rooting, in, at least with celebrities, there's this weird rooting interest to see how they survive it. Yeah. In politics now, it's just a pugilistic, I think we're just in a pugilistic mindset. And, and I think it's just a product of the era we're in. I mean, I kind of think that this, this will pass, but I think it's. I think it's a, I, 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 I you know, we are a self-correcting I mean, democracies are self-correcting, but democracies are challenged now in ways we haven't really seen in a long time. I mean, you go back, we talked about Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a brutally polarizing time. Yeah. But they didn't have social media. They didn't have cable television. It wasn't in your face all the time. Yeah, you know, it's imagine a social media, every time they erected a statue of somebody to the Confederacy, that would have gotten covered. Right. Right, you know, it's like we're right now we're having national, we, we have conversations about whether they should be taken down. Had we had a collective national conversation then in different ways, they probably would have created debate for putting one up. Yeah. How much do you think people, you know, I always sort of valued living in the Midwest and not in Washington when I was doing politics Mm -hmm. because there is a conversation in Washington that is different than the conversation uh, people are having. And How much do you think um, that is that 
how much of a disconnect do you think there is? Because you and I both, you more than I, but spend time talking about all of this stuff. And we tend to focus on... You know these uh, the the excesses of Trump, the right. investigations. Um, you know, obviously everybody's co- covering the hell out of this Kavanaugh hearing, uh, as they should, and and all the related issues. But there is this. Also, I have a sense that people are out there, kind of trying to get a, get along in life and thinking about those things that are closest uh, to them, rather than focusing on this conversation. And they get frustrated right. that. We spend so much time talking about this stuff. You know, it's funny. It's like I think the our problem in the Beltway is that we've there's there's been a section of the of of Washington that has cried um, crisis for for 25 years now, and I think that so look at all the folks. Let's just take the folks the folks in the progressive community who look at Donald Trump as this threat. To, to a way of life. And then you ask them, did you know you used almost identical language when George W. Bush was president? And are the, now, now I would ask you, okay, go, you know, you look back. And, and so I think that part of it is, is and, and you look at the right, and they talked about, oh my God, Bill Clinton, or oh my God, Barack Obama. Yes. And now they're looking back and going, <clears throat> um, I, was, I was speaking um, in an off the record with a group, in front of a group of uh, CEOs, just an off the record conversation. I said, well, you guys are going to miss the days of the pro-business administration of Barack Obama. And they all laughed and, and, and realized what I, what I was saying. But it's like, you know, the use of apocalyptic rhetoric that we've had in our politics for a good 20 years now. And, and you know, maybe, it's the, maybe cable sort of helped amplify it, then social media, then all of these things. I think that's what's numbed America. So I think there's some serious things, some serious things that we've talked about that we're, we're, we're sort of hinting at it, this threat. I mean, how do we deal with social media? The fact that you have uh, um, um, a me- media organizations that are designed to just tear down institutions. They're not. They're not. They're not there to do something. You know. They're not there to protect the First Amendment. They're there, in some ways, taking advantage of the First Amendment. And I'm. I, and, and look, there's. I'm not going to get it's into a, a Fox News. I presume you. Well, look. I think there's. A, look. I think there's some stuff on digital that's much, much. What I'm referring to in this is these advent of these fake, truly fake news organizations. Um, Fox is a separate story, and we can, we can you know, that, that's, that is a more, I, w- I think that's a more nuanced conversation. Well, there are the, as you've pointed out, there are people there, Chris Wallace and others. That's right. Who, so I think that's a different nuanced yeah. conversation. What I'm, what I'm talking about is, is this sort of rise where sort of people get it in their news streams. It really is these digital feeds. And so this is serious stuff, but I think, I think there's a sense of Washington's cried wolf for so long. Um, that, you know, they look at it, it's like, eh, we survived it. They told us we weren't going to survive Clinton. They told us we weren't going to survive Bush. They told us we weren't going to survive Obama. They told us we weren't going to survive Trump. So, yeah, I do think there's some people going, eh. they're discounting it. Not to say they're dismissing it, but they discount the rhetoric probably. If, if we're saying the rhetoric's at 11, they're going, I'm at a 6. Let me know when it's really at 11. You and your, uh, uh, you, you and your mom were left when you're, Mm-hmm. Uh, dad, and and you had to uh, get a scholarship to mm-hmm. go to college, and you you did it with music. Mm-hmm. You played the horn. Played French horn, yes, sir. And uh, how serious were you about that, or was I, it just a way to get to to, to well, college? Look, this is another influence of my father. My father played French horn as a kid. He came from a family. Both my grandparents, my, both my grandparents went to Iowa State. 
both got four-year degrees from Iowa State. Uh, go Cyclones. <laughs> um, think about my grandmother, 19, class of 1933. Um, it still, it, poor woman was born a generation too soon. All the great things she could have done with her life, and society in Iowa wouldn't let her do it, but I'm going to set that aside. Music, very big part. My father was raised with it. His sister was, was a professional musician for a little bit of time as an opera singer. So definitely was always encouraged. I was forced to have piano lessons. And my dad finally said, I said, I want to play an instrument. I said, I'll play trumpet. He said, no, 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 no. He says, everybody's going to play trumpet. You can be a good trumpet player, and you're not going to get it. He says, play French horn. You can be a good French horn player and get a lot of scholarship offers. And so I took my dad's advice, and I was pretty good. And he was right. He was absolutely right. I got, I had a, I had a full scholarship offer to the University of Miami. I got seventy-five percent of my tuition paid for at GW. I had a full scholarship offer to go to Florida State. Um, in fact, of the matter is, without it, I'd been in my a, a community college. Nothing wrong with that. But I'd have been another one of those kids who had the ability to be in a at a, at a decent school, but just wouldn't have been able to afford it. And you, uh, but but your your ulterior motive was to go to Washington. hundred percent. Yeah. I, I, w- I picked schools. Literally, I was, I was applying to schools, and I looked at, I remember looking at all the schools in D.C., GW, Maryland, AU, Georgetown, George Mason, and I looked to see, okay, which ones had political science and music in the same school so I didn't have to, so it would be easier to double major. And I assumed to get a scholarship, I had to double major. Turns out I didn't, but I assumed that at first. So I ended up eliminating Georgetown. I, most GW kids always, you know, the joke at GW is, oh, you guys are the Georgetown wait list. Um, I always say, I never applied, so I don't know because they didn't have music and in um, the same thing. But GW, yeah, it was why I went um, to, to 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 GW over the other. Now school. you're still tooting your horn. You know, you know that ridiculous gridiron club that I belong to yes. as a journalist, and yes. and, and yes. we do a yeah. Let's just say what I joined, they found out you play an instrument, and I had to bring it out of mothballs, and I'm, it's not so bad. <laughs> I, I, I actually enjoy it. I'm looking forward to having time again. Uh-huh. In a couple, you know. In a when couple is that going to happen? Well, I figure once in 20, Trump should get his fourth term in 2032. <laughs> At that point, I think I'm done. Maybe you can play the horn in the parade in the yeah. fourth inaugural uh, parade. So uh, you, while you were in college, you worked for Tom Harkin, mm-hmm. the uh, senator from Iowa, doing FEC compliance. How did you get that gig? I was just interested in working in a president. I was in D.C. and I thought there's a presidential campaign going on. This would be interesting. Um, I got. I was, it was doing a little short lived, but it was. I always joke it was the campaign in 1990. He ran for president. The 90. He ran for president. The Harkin 91 campaign. That's what I <laughs> call it. Um, We're going to see a lot of those next year. And it was just I needed work. I couldn't volunteer. They were like, "Oh, we got volunteers." I said, "Well, I'm not. I can't. I got to go work. I needed to work in school and all this stuff." And they said, "All right, we'll pay you hourly to do FEC compliance." So basically, I was the kid entering in data entry and then taking the checks to the bank yeah. in Bethesda, Maryland. And, and you that pro- was it. I you outlasted everybody. Well, that right? was the irony. And what's so funny is that it was. That's all I ever did. I never got to do it. Like I never was. You know. Now, of course. Um, the way political conspiracies work, I think I've run the campaign by now. You know, but yeah, yeah it's it so was, there, uh, there, it, there, it, there it was, was a, there yeah. wasn't a lot of emotional high points to the no. FEC filing. I, and I never, you know, it's so funny. I don't have any, you know, I never saw him. Yeah. It, it, to be honest, it jaded me. 
it actually well yeah I, I can understand it, that as a young kid yeah it's just sort of not, like this is what campaigns are about yeah well, eh, forget none, it none of that in profiles and courage then I got an internship at the hotline I like, this is much more interesting and the I got way into, way into and for those who don't remember the hotline was really a forerunner of 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 what we see there are a lot of tip sheets and uh, pro- newsletters that we see today but the hotline was really a uh, well we a were aggregating before anybody knew that word mattered Right? Yeah. Like, that's what we did, is all we did at Hotline, I got there in 92, it started in 87, um, but it was the internet before there was an internet. I had a buddy who was on, a, a former colleague of mine used to call up when he was trying to explain it, he says, we're a clipping service with a brain. And yeah. I used to say, that's right, you know. Which but it is, was really useful, I mean, I used to... Tip sheet. And it was yeah. faxed, right? It was technically always electronic. It was us and the pornographers on the bulletin board services, <laughs> I always joke. Uh, pornographers, the gamblers, the stock market people, and us. Um, you actually downloaded it. Now, yes, most most people of your stature, you know, bulletin board, you were like, what is that? So just give me a fax. That was as tech savvy right. as we could get back then. Most most of most us people. at my age is what you're saying. I just but, said uh, you're firm. I didn't but, say your age. But, you know, you, the uh, uh, well, there are two things that struck me about this. One is it was pure nepotism that you got this <laughs> this job. Yes and no. What's funny about that is, the guy who, so my cousin worked there. Yes. But my well, cousin never, well. uh, uh, Bob, Balkan. Bob Balkan, but my cousin never told Doug Bailey that we were related uh-huh. and uh-huh. waited six months before telling Doug us. Bailey, who was the, the founder. founder. Yeah. And, and I want to talk to you about him. Oh, I'd, I'd love to. And he, it was sort of after a while, he goes to Bob, who's this kid? Yeah. And then Bob's like, well, you know, he's my cousin. <laughs> What's funny is that I actually, my first contribution to the hotline was at 1989. I was senior in high school. And there was a special election for Claude Pepper's seat. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a huge race. Con- Congressman from Congressman from Miami. Florida. It was a huge mm-hmm. race. It was this uh, rising star in the Republican Party named Ileana Ross Leitman. Yes. Who was recruited to win it, run in that special. Retiring this year. And that's You've when she won. You've run the, the, the I ran the entire, her entire <laughs> political career. It's done. It's like that was my first. You know, Bob would call me at like uh, 5 or 30 in the morning. He says, hey, is there any coverage in the Miami Herald? Of the race, this is '89. We didn't even have fax machine in my house. It's you know. So anyway, that was my first little. So Doug, Doug Bailey, for those who don't know, before he did that, was really one of the pioneers in political uh, media consulting. Uh, and uh, when I was first covering politics and then coming up as a consultant, Bailey Deerdorf. Uh, he and John Deerdorf, his partner, were the go-to firm for moderate Republicans of the sort that you don't see anymore. You know, I have this book that I've never had in my head, but I've always, or a TV movie I wanted to do, or however you want to do it, and it's the two brightest minds in Republican politics in the 1970s when it came to understanding modern communications. One was Douglas L. Bailey, and the other one was Roger Ailes. Yeah. And they were the two biggest media firms, weren't they, in the 70s. And literally, Roger Ailes was the guy you hired if you had... To go low, right? And Doug Bailey was the guy you hired if you were a moderate trying to sell, to sell that. And, yeah. and it was, and remember, I would say they were remember. both geniuses at it. One saw television and tried to always find use for good. The other one saw television to see the use for self. I'll just put it that way. Remember, you you were a kid, but uh, the race for that elected Mitch McConnell to the Senate. He Roger Ailes did these. Bloodhound commercials. Where's D. Huddleston? That's who McConnell well, look, beat. And bloodhounds looking all uh, for because he had missed some 
Right, miss some votes. Well, yeah. You know, Roger Ailes' specialty was making someone less, someone else less electable. Yeah. Doug Bailey's specialty was to make you more electable and more likable. Probably the most famous race in a Senate contest, maybe in, in, in Illinois, would be what he did for Chuck Percy. And uh, Chuck Percy, to this day, was just... Actually, I, I had flashbacks of it because the current governor of Illinois essentially tried the Chuck Percy approach, which is this yeah, idea of the mea, cul- well. the mea yeah. culpa ad. Yes. And the first time that a candidate... In 78. Yeah. I made a mistake. Yeah. I let you down. And yeah. it worked, didn't it? It did work. But you know what? In 84, he hired Roger Ailes. Uh, Percy because, did. Goes from Doug Bailey in 78 because wins. He, because the party had shifted, and he thought he yeah. needed to shift too. I, I know this because I ran the campaign for Paul Simon against Percy, and that was when I first met Roger Ailes when we were negotiating debates. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, what it raises is the question of this transformation of the Republican Party. Yeah. Doug Bailey's Republican Party doesn't exist anymore, and there probably are Doug Bailey Republicans out there among voters, yeah. But uh, there, yeah, because of the nature of our politics today, you cannot be what Chuck Percy was, what uh, uh, a, a whole series of Republicans, Milken, uh, uh, Milliken in Michigan. And, By the um, way, for people to understand Doug Bailey, what's great about Doug is that this was who he was his whole life. Do you know, as a college graduate student at Tufts, he helped run the write-in campaign in the 64 New Hampshire primary that got, um, was either in 60 or 64, the New Hampshire primary where the ambassador to the Vietnam, um, yes, uh, uh, um, uh, Henry, uh, Henry Lodge, Cabot Lodge yeah. wins. And Bailey, Doug, as basically a graduate student at Tufts, ran that campaign. Yeah. I got to, when after he passed away, his, his son invited me over to go through some political stuff to see... And I had no idea. And he had all these clips after clips. And it was just, the point was, he realized at the time the party was going off either f- too far to the progressive end or too, part of, too far to the modern end and too far to the conservative end. But he was always about sort of disruption through voters, disruption through small d democracy. And what I, that's who sort of I learned to love politics from in some ways, it's sort of an extension of my father. But also the fact that he never changed who he was. He was pushing for sort of this consensus-based politics his whole, his whole life. Now, I'm curious, and I'm going to throw a question back at you, because it's a question that I'm going to ask both you, and we're going to be doing an event with Carl, Carl Rove. Rove. yes. Because I, so Mark Murray presented this to me, my deputy, my sort of partner in Who crime. Who was a fellow at the Institute yes. of Politics at the University of Chicago. And he and I have been doing, basically, he's been at NBC longer than I have. Um, he said, you know, you and I got raised... With po- that, that the, the, the way you understood a successful politician was the politician that could create consensus and could sort of bridge a divide. In this day and age, that's not a winner anymore. The winner is the politician that paints in bright colors and inspires the most. And, for, and now the middle has to force, is forced choosing a side. Um, it's just a different style of politics. This is, not, this is not the politics you were raised with. It was not the politics I was raised with. And I think for those of us in the establishment, it's not the politics that Karl Rove was raised with. Right. You know, and I think all of us in our, in our own walks of life, you on the Democratic side of the aisle, Karl on the Republican side of the aisle, myself and media, we're in the middle of this political transformation and we haven't quite figured it out. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are forces that are uh, really working against the emergence of this 
uh, a reemergence of that kind of middle. I mean, redistricting being one of them. Uh, and uh, the and the social our system's media and cable not designed. environment. Our system is not designed to reward pragmatism or centrism. Our system actually punishes it. And you know what I think you're going to see in this uh, election coming up on November sixth is what we've seen through successions of elections, which is uh, Republicans killing off dem- moderate Democrats, Democrats kidding, killing off moderate Republicans. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's David it, really c- think, cyclical. Think about this: oh six, ten, fourteen, and now eighteen. All four. We were probably staring at four straight wave midterms. Right. Two for the D's and two for the R's, and we have basically killed the same one hundred districts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but what, uh, it also creates a situation where the polarity is so great that. Um, the risks of, I mean, one of the reasons why we're, you're going to lose um, a, a bunch of Republicans this time is the sense that they were falling, they, they were not acting as independents in this uh, process because there is a strong feeling in the Republican Party is that you can only go so far. Uh, but um, uh, it, it, whether we swing back, I think, is there are more, there are more headwinds I know Carl is more optimistic because it gives him a chance to talk about all the uh, machinations <laughs> of 19th century politics and how bad it was then. And he was right, but we didn't have the conditions then that we have now. And we didn't have this rapidly moving uh, media media environment and also changes in the economy that have been, you know, technology is just driving everything in a way that it wasn't. Count me on Carl's side a little bit. I think the beginning of the 20th century, when you look at it, yeah, and that's what is he was very say. similar yeah, to what we're dealing the Gilded with now. Age. And, so yeah. I, there is part of me that looks at the first, if you look at basically the first 30, 25 years of the, of the 20th century, there's a lot of parallels that actually should make us feel slightly more optimistic. Yeah, yeah. That. I'm not, look, I'm not pessimistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a big believer. I wrote a book called Believer, man. I yeah. believe in our democracy, <laughs> and I think that we have the capacity to, to uh, self-correct. I just think the headwinds are, are, are strong right now, and the, 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 the rate of change is very, very, uh, very, very pronounced. So Doug Bailey was one of the great influences in your life. Yeah. There's another guy who came along and hired you away, yeah. uh, and that's Tim Russert, yeah. hired you for NBC. Tell me about that and the decision to make the move. You were in a very good position. I was. You know, the hotline was uh, absorbed by the National Journal and, and, the, Atlantic, and the Atlantic, well, and you, were, you, had, you had been the editor of the hotline, I mean, and you were very well uh, thought of and connected, which is why Tim approached you. Well, it was interesting. He did, and it was it was one of those jobs where I thought I always said I wanted to be a political director. I was always that's what I thought I wanted to be, um, and I remember um, I really wanted to just get in the door. I remember when CBS was hiring a new political director when Katie Kirk took over. I thought, oh, they're gonna be you know I'd love to just get an interview. CBS wouldn't even get me an interview, um, and I and I by the way I always had an affinity for CBS because they invented. The political unit. Yeah, Mar- a guy named Marty Plissner, who I got to yes, be friends sure, late, late in life. Yeah, one of the real treats that I've, I got to have. I got this job. He emailed me. We had we started having quarterly lunches, just just old stories and like just just a, one of the great great guys of of sort of television of of sort of modern television news history. 
Um, so I always thought I wanted to, and then all of a sudden when I got the offer, I don't be honest, my wife was pregnant with our second child. Um, we had just bought a new house and I'm like, <laughs> what do they say? It's like new job, a new kid and new house. Well, I didn't want to add new job to that. Yeah. That's a lot of, that's so, a lot of yeah, anxiety. It was like all at once. And so I said, no, I don't think I. Just, Russell was the Washington bureau chief in addition to being the host of Meet the Press right. at the time. And I said, you know, and I just signed a three-year contract with David Bradley, who was the owner of The Atlantic, yeah. National Journal, my boss. And he treated me really well. And I actually started to think, you know, I just started to write for The Atlantic. And I thought, I remember thinking, I've never thought of it was a good enough writer for a real magazine. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And you're like, whoa. Well, I, I don't I guess Atlantic, may, maybe I'm, they have to publish me, but it... I suddenly, you know, started like, well, maybe this is the track I want to go down, and maybe I want to, maybe I want to be an editor of a magazine, and that's where I thought I was headed, and perfectly excited yeah. about that. And then I slept on it for a weekend, and I said, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna always wonder what if. So I said, you know, one thing about David Bradley, if you get to know him, I figured, well, yeah, he's gonna, he'll forgive me, yes, and he'll take me back if it's a total disaster, and um. I'm still counting on him to take me back when this ends up becoming a total disaster for me. Um, no, I, and um, look, you know, it's interesting about Tim. Um, is it Tim and Doug Bailey are the same guy? Yes. They're wired very the same. So Tim and I got to become good friends quickly. It was interesting. It was like, it didn't take long for him to sort of trust me and vice versa. And I always say in the last six months, the best way I can describe it is last six months of his life, I, I got to spend all this time with him. And it was like, he, I always say, he let me in on the joke. I'm not going to tell you what the joke is, but he let me in on it. Mm -hmm. And I understood network television in a different way. And I understood politics, sort of the way presidential campaigns and television networks interacted. I just sort of learned some things that you needed to learn if you're you know, going to, to succeed and, and survive. And... In, in the world of network television, both internally, externally. And, um, you know, I, I, I cherish those six months where I really feel like he let me in. Um, and he's another one I have some conversations with. Yeah. You know, he, uh, he was a guy who absolutely loved the game of politics and, the, and, and revered the business of government. And by the way, people are going to hear the word you say the word game. Yeah, you know, I, that's I your problem, game, no, game. No, no, and no. God damn it. That really, and here's the thing. Yes, it's a, it's a contest. It's a contest of ideas. It's a contest yeah. of wills. It's a contest of humanity. It's a, it's a, just because you call it a game doesn't mean it's not serious. And yeah. it doesn't mean any and, of us and, took and, it seriously. You know, and I, mean, I, I just want people to understand and I kindred that. spirits in that way. Like, I think this has meaning. And, yes, and you can, yes. but but the the exhilaration that Teddy Roosevelt spoke of of being in the arena is something that he uh, that Tim understood because he had come from politics with Pat Moynihan with Mario Cuomo, not just any politics. Yeah, I mean big, vivid, gigantic, big people, politics, New York State people, politics, yeah. and and machine politics. Yeah, you know I'm yeah. doing this long project on sort of the rise of Trump. In the in the seventies and eighties of New York, yeah. And you know what's been great about it is I'll talk to all these people who can give me some war stories about Abe Beam and Ed Koch and all this stuff, and then he says, "Hey, so I got to tell you some Timmy stories." Yeah, it's always Timmy. 
yeah. with the New York Democrats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They always have a Timmy story. Yeah. And by the way, one is better than the next. They're yeah. all fantastic. Yeah. No, he was uh, he was one of a kind, and he approached his interviews with that passion. You know, you had the sense that he was a guy who understood at a very high level what the person across the table was involved in, and he could call bullshit on him. But he he mm-hmm. he did it from the standpoint of someone who had been through those wars look i always thought he found this balance and it's the balance i always say i strive for which is asking a tough question respectfully yeah okay making the you never got the sense that he didn't respect the person across the the table i don't like it's funny i'm careful with who i book i don't want to have people on that i don't respect yeah and i just i'll just be honest with you there's certain people we avoid sometimes because i don't want to I don't want to put I don't want to put myself in that position. Sometimes you have to you interview people because they're the people with the information and at the end of the day that's what you do. But it is it is I do at the end of the day I do feel as if on a, on the Sunday morning show for in particular everybody on there should be somebody I respect. Doesn't matter that what they believe, but that I respect that they're honest about how they. Sometimes going it's it. hard to enforce that because there are people you have to have. That's right. Because they're and I don't want to get into a contest yeah, no, no, of no, no. who do I respect no, 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 and who no, I don't. No, but you get do my, that. Yeah. I, w- I wouldn't do. No, that. I know you would. I was there for Tim's one of his last big interviews, which was with Barack Obama. It was, I think, in Indiana. Mm-hmm. It was an hour long interview, and it was very, very, you know. Russert, it was like, you got to go through this oral exam. <laughs> you know, he, he administered the oral exam for people who are running for president. And it, the, you, you couldn't do that today, could you? You, you couldn't do, a, uh, you couldn't do a, uh, uh, an, an hour-long interview. I mean, that, that's not Look, the way these— I did 30 minutes with President Obama the first time I had him, first time I, my first show on Meet the Press. I've done— 25 and 30s with with Trump and Clinton and you do get the sense it was slightly too long for the audience yeah we 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 sort of could figure that out unfortunately look there's just a different I I get jealous of reading these old transcripts you know for Dick Cheney for the full hour yeah I would love Dick Cheney for the full hour I would love um Mike Pence for the full hour you know you could explore some stories but at the end of the day, the viewers, yeah, we, we're in a leave. different. They're, they're leaving. They're measuring a, second by second. Yeah, they're, when well, it's you, not when just the audience that. sticks, and but the audience is looking, you know, and and you can find and and I will we'll get people say no, 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 no. I love those forty-five minute interviews. I know you do. Well, we have other ways to give you forty-five minute interviews. Yeah. The other problem, though, is more and more politicians won't give like that anymore. Right. They just won't. Would you advise them to give anymore? Uh, it's tough, isn't it? It is. But, you know, we viewed it with Obama. We viewed it. We wanted the oral exam. We wanted it. We wanted the test, you know, because uh, we were about the business of trying to persuade people that a guy who was four years out of the Illinois Senate was prepared to be president. And And that was one of the tests we had to pass. You know, it's funny. I hope every politician, to me, it was pretty obvious um, of what kind of media strategy works in the 21st century. Because Hillary Clinton tried a 19, um, 20th century approach to television news media. The big interview, cherry picking, I want to do a big evening news anchor interview here. I'll do right. my first Sunday over here and I'll do my... Donald Trump said, bring it on. Right. I'll do whatever. Right. And in the 21st century fractured media environment, do, doing can't. the whatever. Right. What was always interesting, 
Dave, what I always found interesting about the Obama White House is you guys were trying to basically straddle both worlds. You treated traditional media like a, a 20th century approach. You get this interview. But you did embrace new media with a disruption 21st century approach. I'll do Mark Marin and I'll do this. And, yeah. And, and what I would say is I do think the public, I was talking to Andrew Gillum, the uh, Democratic nominee for governor of Florida, yeah. and I, I was very impressed with how well he did in South Florida without running a single... I think they ran one yeah. ad. And I said, I know it's a pretty fractured media environment. He says, oh, you have no idea. He says, you got to do like Mama Joe's Instagram yeah. broadcast. I said, excuse me? No, that's He said, the, the I didn't know about it either. He says, but Mama Joe talks to more Haitian Americans yeah. than anybody else in yeah. South Florida. And he goes, I did a million of those things. Yeah. It's just yeah. interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, that is the great insight of the, as you, as you say, of the 21st century. You got to, like Willie Sutton said, you got to... You got you 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 rob banks because that's where the money is. You got to go where the pe- people are, and it's a lot of different banks. And you know what? It's okay to be not polished. And in fact, the less polished you are, sometimes the more authentic, and it and it works better. I mean, you you can oversaturate, no doubt. But if I looked at 2016 and I said, well, who who's whose media strategy are you going to adopt? Seems like a no brainer. You adopt the Trump media strategy. Meet the press. Well, let me just finish up on Russert. He he died suddenly. I, I mean, I think many, many people felt that loss acutely, not just because of who he was and all of the relationships he had. I count myself among them, yeah. but because he represented something that was uh, that, that that, you know, that that sense of he was an institutionalist and he policed the institution in some ways. You know, it's interesting. I, I think. It, it's sort of in the way we revere Cronkite in a previous generation. Yeah. And Tim is revered in that same way. I put David Brinkley in that same sort of Mount Rushmore aspect of it. Um, and, of course, now with with how fractured media is and, frankly, how aggressive the campaign is, at how members of the press are treated like politicians now. As I always said, I'm, I now have more empathy for the elected official than I ever did because I get treated. Yeah. I get background searched you know i get people dumping oppo on me yeah. for some and reason. your wife who yeah her, so, she's been involved in politics yeah. that becomes an issue exactly it's so i i've sort of like wow this is not something i've been used to frankly you know i have no idea if tim were alive today who knows how um the way media the way the world would treat him or not but i do think he, he did he is sort of that he was a last of an era yeah. That doesn't mean there aren't going to be new eras. That doesn't mean that you and you know, as, as you and I get older, we'll start talking about the good old days of somehow this. We'll yes. be, we'll consider this stuff the good old days, and it will Say, be. Remember Chuck Todd? Yeah, you know, we'll talk, we'll, we'll just remember the you know the 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 way yeah. the Obama yeah, campaign. Right, right, you know, right, 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 so course. there is that sense of recent bias there. But there's no doubt Tim feels like the end of the sentence that began with Edward R. Murrow. Okay, but, you know what I mean. But Edward he also represents. You know, you, sp- you talked before about how um, the sense of regard that he communicated for people who were in the arena. Uh, that seems almost quaint now. I mean, you, you're right. You, you know, you and others try and treat the people across the table respectfully, but um, but there was a sense that he conveyed that that seems sepia toned almost about. Um, about people who were in that world, you know? You know, it's interesting. I used to say that 95% of the people, one of the great privileges I had at working at Hotline is that we used to interview these candidates 
early on when they were running for the House or the Senate, one of their first or second trips to Washington, they'd do an off-the-record meeting with the hotline, Charlie Cook and his team, Stuart Rothenberg, the longtime political handicappers. Yeah. In fact, I, my, my colleague Von Ververs remembers our Barack Obama meeting better than I remember our Barack Obama meeting, but we had it in December of 2002, you know, for the U.S. Senate, and here's this skinny guy comes in. I remember and, 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 a man and, because I was, uh, I was working for him. Yeah, you know? and so... And I used to say, you know, going through those meetings, it was a reminder, 95% of the people that come to Washington came here for the right reasons. You may not agree with their philosophies, but they came here to do good in what they believed was good. And, I, and I'm with sincerest form. And I used to say, you know, and, and, and look, people get corrupted by the system and all yeah. this stuff. I am concerned that more and more people want to use politics for selfish means. To get rich, to get famous, um, they're not interested in it for this. I'm worried that it isn't 95% anymore, that maybe we're down to 80% or doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. Look, and I, I don't know what to do with that. Um, I do think that we've celebrified our politics in, in such a way. And, you know, maybe it's the natural. We've always had celebrities dip their toes in politics. I mean, let's, I mean, you know, that it's not a new thing. But it does seem as the advent of Jesse Ventura's governorship did sort of change how we've, there was a time we used to view becoming a politician as an aspirational thing and now we don't it's it's an accessible thing but we also don't hold politicians in high regard anymore when uh when tim died how did that hit you and i mean it he you know another guy who i guess in some ways was a father figure to you although you you weren't together that long well it, you know it's interesting what it did do is it is it um just made things lonely again you know it 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 actually doug and i sort of got a, we, we we've always re, we always had remained close he passed away in 2013 but i did find myself almost leaning on him more you know a little bit more um it's look when you go through the things that you went through at 19 that i went through at 16 let's be realistic we're really good at compartmentalizing yeah okay so um, it took, you know, it, it, it takes a while to process these things. And I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty big compartmentalizer uh, it, it, anyway. And I think part of it is just because when you go through a, a, a teenage trauma, I think that's just how the human brain works, right? That's just especially my wife and I had this debate. It, there is something about we think testosterone forces more compartmentalization than estrogen does. We just... Maybe we're maybe we're, we we think scientifically. Someday. I'm sure someone somebody will prove this scientifically. Yeah, that. that's what we were saying. That yeah. that's, um, so it did hit a lot harder because, and I say this with no disrespect to you, but you know you feel like you had somebody that you could get the answer from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the hardest part right now in navigating the world that I'm in right now is I don't know who has the answers. I know I don't. But you always want to. There's always. I'm sure you have people in your life that you still want to yeah. touch base with. Well, my, you dad, think, my dad was one of them. And well, see, I know all these years later. I I have these. I have more conversations with my dad trying because you know my dad. My dad would have been an interesting. He'd had an interesting reaction to this period because he would have been. He very much thought he had a suspicion of New York-based media. 
the New York, he says, those New Yorkers think they're better than us. Yeah. He would say that. And he would say, and I was raised with that sort of, and I always, I channel that. I always feel like that's healthy that I, that it, cause, and at the same time, he didn't like, he didn't like somebody that was trying to pull one. So I've, I've, I've just been fascinated how he would process the current political environment. And it's actually those conversations. Um, I have that with him trying to understand what the undecided voter might think. And then I have these, I have my Tim conversations with trying to figure out, all right, how would you question this Trump White House? Like, right. you know, this didn't work. Well, how would you do it this way? So these are the conversations. I, or how I, would you react when, they, when the president of the United States calls you sleepy eyes, sleepy eyes Chuck Todd? Well, you know, that was nothing. Calling me an SOB and having my kids being the first one to tell me that the president called me an SOB. That was the most personally angry I've ever been. Yeah. I'll admit that because I'm like, wait a minute. This sort of crossed the line. I was at dinner with my family and my daughter's Instagram's blowing up. She's yeah. 13, she's 14. That's a terrible age for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Now, you know, she was funny the other but day. But you're right, you, you, you're getting a feeling for what people in politics Oh, feel. I get it. Look, I understood Brett Kavanaugh's family rage. Yeah. I get it. You become so protective. I Where do you so think that's going, by the way, the Kavanaugh thing? I, look, I just worry this is, a, this is, I don't, here's my concern. I think the country can handle it better than our elected leadership. I worry that we don't have the political maturity of our elected leadership to, to, to deal with the fallout of this. I think our culture wars are, you know, boy, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas happened in an odd-numbered year. Right. This is happening in an even-numbered year. It's right. so politically Weeks fraught. before a very I just, meaningful election. I, I'm just, I fear yeah. how this gets processed over time, meaning I just think it's it's... I think it's an irreconcilable thing for, for, for large chunks of the country who are never going to feel satisfied about this. And I don't know. Well, you how know, it's you, kind of a Rorschach test. I don't what, know we're, how what we're finding, which is like it's falling right into. And I think this was actually a strategic decision on the part of Team Kavanaugh. But it's falling right into if you're, you know, if you're a, a, a Republican, you see it one way. If you're a Democrat, you see another. And independents no, you do. are split. You know? And you struggle with it. And I look, I mean, I'm, I always say I'm a human being, too. And I've, I, I've put myself in both shoes, and I, I can't believe anybody would put themselves through this. So I just don't believe an accuser is going to make something up because right. what you're putting yourself right. through is crazy. Yeah. I mean that that is you are really if you're making it up, you're you really are into self-inflicted wounds, right? Um, and yet, if somebody were accusing me of something I didn't do, I'd be jumping up and down and screaming as yeah, as, as, like he did. Like Judge Kavanaugh. So in some ways, they've both reacted in ways that make them believable. Though you did say to a group of kids uh, that was quoted somewhere, and tell me if it's wrong, that you thought he was disqualified, not by a, the particular facts of this, this case. Oh, well, here's what I said. I said, I think a question, I didn't say what disqualified him. It's not up to me to discuss yes, disqualified. Yes, This is what I said. I said, I believe what I said was he... Is the, are we getting what I'm curious about is and here's something we don't know he's a human being how is this process going to change his ability to be an impartial judge right well he how do we and here's the thing how yeah. do we test that right now right that was kind of stunning about the way he uh, approached that hearing not that he was outraged but that it channeled itself into and I think it was part of a strategy let me preview another question for yeah. you 
Okay. Um, I'm jotting all these down. No, no, no. It's um, what's the difference between a partisan and an ideologue? I believe there's a big difference. But there is a difference. Yeah. What, what do you think the difference is? Um, well, I think a partisan is less concerned about ideology. A partisan is concerned about advancing the interests of one team uh, or another team. I mean, people go to the court all the time with ideology. Um, I don't think it's, it's hard to divorce people from that. But if you say, I am there to advance the interests of a party, yeah. that, that is troubling in a, in a, in, in a judicial... What I've tried thing. to explain to conservative friends of mine, on they don't understand the... the um, They've ne- they've been trying to process, particularly younger, cons- excuse me, younger conservatives. They've been trying to process the, the sort of this vehement anger that's on the left for Kavanaugh, particularly among official Washington. And I said, Kavanaugh, Ken Starr is right. to Democrats what Judge what the word Bork is to some Republicans. It's a trigger. Okay, it's a trigger for like a a um of of just this guttural partisan warfare it's a horrible memory and so Kavanaugh being a part of star has always been a disqualifier for a guy like Chuck Schumer and a guy some of these Senate Democrats and it's and so and, do you think that he was right when he said this was the revenge of the Clintons well that the fact that he brought it up I don't know if he's right or wrong I could tell you that scar tissue is there here's the thing he has it him saying it means he believes it's there. He knows that scar tissue is there. It just, you know, you, they could have found, I mean, and I think almost this is what Mitch McConnell was trying to tell the president when he leaked, right. hey, too much paper. Meaning McConnell was, didn't want him to appoint didn't, Kavanaugh. didn't want him to appoint Kavanaugh because he says there's just too much paper. Meaning, yeah, he worked in the Bush White House. He worked at Ken Starr. There's too much foyable information mm-hmm. because he was a partisan worker. That this is no disrespect to him as an intellect, as a legal mind. But he worked in he worked in Republican politics in some of the more you know whether it's the Bush White House, mm-hmm. whether it was was Ken the Starr, recount, the, the recount, right. and those are all of the Rost things for Democrats. So it was a version of poking them in the eye, which, look, we have Donald Trump, to many to, to many Trump supporters, Trump is a revenge. Aha, we own the libs now, or we own the Clintons, or we own the media. That's like this mindset. And you're sitting there, to what end? And in some ways they see that Kavanaugh is just more of like digging that well, but, that in the but eye. it does double back to ideology because to what end is that Trump has been pretty good to in terms of the judges and some of his policies. There was, there's a payoff there. No, there, there is, but it's just this partisan warfare. I just don't know how we're going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And um, it could be that the country or at least a majority of the country spread around m- enough states mm-hmm. demands it. I mean, that's... You know, I, you know, Ben Sass. I thought Ben Sass diagnosed the problem correctly when he said the reason we're having these knockdown, dragout fights and about the judici- direction of the judiciary is because we don't legislate and we don't debate in the legislature. All of our major legislation, and right. this is where he's one hundred percent right. Most of the major legislation of the last twenty five years has been done with partisan, basically yeah. a partisan uh, majorities, yeah. in order to sh- you know sort of. You jammed it through. We haven't had a yeah. true bipartisan, well, par- really since the first NAFTA. Right. Partly because the bases of each party uh, are a compromise 
has become a dirty word, and it's sort of essential to that process of legislating. So, um, but again, unless people demand it, we're going to keep keep going down this road. I got to go, but I want to ask you. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't, and, and I think he'd insist. Just just give me a minute or two on Trump as a as a as someone you've covered White Houses. Mm-hmm. Um, Talk to talk to talk about him as someone you you said you you don't have anybody to go and ask about how to. I'm not sure there is a template for it. No, there's not. I've 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 tried to figure out what are the templates. Um, I had a fun with Doris Kearns Goodwin, and I said I said you know I said part of me says there's a little bit of Jimmy Carter and a little bit of Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, you know you know you could you could see there where there's this. You know, Certainly Jimmy, a little bit of Richard Nixon. And a little bit of Richard Nixon, right? There's a little bit of paranoia. There's a little bit of I alone can fix it. That was Jimmy Carter's big problem, right. the micromanager. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, sort of, you know, the disruptor. So you could look at presidents and say, okay, there's pieces. Trump has the ability to be pieces of, of some of these folks. You know, I, I've, I spend a, I've been spending a lot of time reading Roy Cohn and getting to know Roy Cohn which means you get to know Joseph McCarthy and get to know some of, some of that stuff. And he was a mentor to Donald Trump. And he was a mentor to Donald Trump, an important mentor to Donald Trump. And the biggest thing he learned from Trump was you just you never give in. Right. You always fight, you always fight, you always fight. The other amazing thing about Donald Trump is he always finds a way to declare victory and always finds a way to survive. And he has had so many near-death experiences where he has not died whatever death he thought would be death right for him not having money was a would have been death right in the mid-90s and yet he somehow survived i somehow survived that it has given him this air of invincibility about himself yeah that is that is that is unique to the presidency that we've not had before the other thing is is that he saw the great he's he found the you know every every system has a bug and he exploited the greatest bug in our system, shame. The most important disciplinary tool we have in this country is public shame. It works in entertainment, works in sports, works in politics, whatever it is. We, I brought up Tiger Woods earlier. What got Tiger Woods to do rehab? You might yeah. argue public shame. Donald Trump doesn't care. He's impervious think. to He's that. He's impervious to it. Yeah. And it is, that, is his, that is his superhero weapon or whatever you want to call it. Um, and maybe his greatest weakness as well. It's and both, as right? Often no, no, no. the case, people's strength. Your are strength their, and your weakness is yeah. the same. It's why he got there. It will undo him. But do realize that the first time, if he somehow doesn't get a second term or somehow, and tries for it, or somehow doesn't finish a term, it'll be the first time he was truly failed, yeah. which is why he, may, why he is so comfortable touching the electric fence. Yeah. Because the electric fence has never killed him before. If that if that happens, I, I my prediction is that he will not take responsibility. It will be the news media. It will be, you know, the Chinese. It will be. It will not be him. No, but history will not. will treat him a different way. Is my guess, but we'll see. Chuck Todd, always good to see you, my Thank friend. You, Thank you for being. You got a date. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 